Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by Future Europe, another podcast that is highly recommended to EU confidential listeners. Future Europe showcases the continent's innovative future through projects in each of the 28 EU countries. Presented by the European Investment Bank, visit eib.org slash future Europe to listen. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. What a week to be back in Europe. I began the week arriving from a short break in Australia, thinking that the Brexit debate never really changes. Well, finally, with the agreement of a draft deal between the EU and UK negotiators on Wednesday, there's some reason to think change is coming. At the same time, the fundamentals haven't shifted. Britain is deeply divided from its cabinet room to its high streets. No parliament on either side of the channel has signed off on the deal, and the UK parliament may never agree. Indeed, first reaction polls show the British public is unconvinced by the draft deal. In other words, we're still a long way from Brexit, whatever happens in coming days. Earlier this week, we also saw how little political capital Angela Merkel has left to sacrifice. Instead of offering support for any short or medium-term, big European-level reforms when she addressed the European Parliament, or giving a final compromise-cutting view on Brexit, Merkel instead spoke about working towards a vision for a European army. Not the actual army, just a vision for it. It sounds interesting until you realise it will never happen while she's still in office, so the value of the comments are greatly reduced. In our main interview this week, Rose Gottmuller, the highest-ranking woman in the history of NATO, talks about Russia's turn from the West and how attitudes to women have changed in the national security world since she began her career in the 1970s. Or in some cases, those attitudes still need updating. That's followed by our regular podcast panel. And now to our main interview this week with Rose Gottmuller. She's the Deputy Secretary-General of NATO, which makes her the highest-ranking woman in the history of the organisation. Gottmoller recently received an International Trailblazer Award from the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security for her work in changing the male-dominated world of defence policy. At that ceremony, she acknowledged that NATO has not always had the role of women as a top priority. Politico's news editor Andrew Gray began by asking her to expand on those comments. If you're walking around NATO headquarters, you'll notice it's a rather manly organization. It is an organization, an alliance that is devoted to the defense and security of its members. And so, honestly, for so many years, uh, the militaries of the alliance were dominated by men. And so I think, naturally enough, NATO was dominated by men. 
This is changing, and it's changing rapidly. The Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, and I have been very keen to push forward in establishing women, peace, and security issues as part of our core business, and it has uh, really been a marked change in just the last few years since I've been here. If we go back to the start of your career when you were starting out in this world in the national security arena, how unusual was it for a woman to choose that career? What was the attitude like towards you and other women in this arena at that time? And how would you say it's changed over the years? I benefited from the first phase of what we used to call women's liberation in the 1970s. I entered my career in the mid-1970s. It was a period of great ferment and change. And so I didn't have the door automatically slammed in my face. My first big job was with Rand Corporation, for example. I worked there as a research assistant for their senior Soviet military analyst who was writing a book on the first strategic arms limitation treaty called SALT-1. And uh, he brought me in, great guy, Thomas Wolfe his name was, as uh, his intern because I spoke Russian and because I could read the Soviet military journals he needed me to read. But over the years, I think every woman can point to layers of hidden misogyny layers of glass ceiling sometimes that prevent them from moving forward. So that's been the more, I would say, day-in, day-out struggle in my career, but for other women as well. Can you think of any examples where you did feel that, you know, may have been invisible or it may have been actually quite visible? Were there times in your career where you could quite clearly think, this is because of my gender? Well, there are many little examples, but I think some of the funniest examples had to do when I was first encountering the Soviet military in the 1980s. I was working on nuclear weapons issues. I'd be invited to conferences from time to time. And the look of disbelief on their faces when I came to the conference table and started to present was a sight to behold. It was really very funny in some ways, and they would tell me that point blank. They'd say, you can't possibly know anything about nuclear weapons or nuclear deterrence. But I found that as time went by and I just continued presenting, continued writing and publishing in this field, they began to consider me one of the guys. And I think that's the goal for everyone working in whatever field. It's a term of art in English to be considered one of the guys, but it just means you're part of the group. And uh, in a way, your gender, they are blind to it. Perhaps we should even rewind a bit further. Why did you decide to go into this field and what kind of attitudes did you encounter among your family and friends? You know, did people say that doesn't sound like a job for a woman? Did you ever get it that kind of blatantly? Not from family or friends, no, not at all. In fact, my uh, father was very supportive. I always joke that uh, he was really my first inspiration because he took me outside when I was quite a little girl and showed me the first Sputnik, the satellite that was going across the sky in uh, Columbus, Ohio, where I was growing up. It was a very clear night, and he said, oh, look, the Russians, he never called them Soviets, they were always Russians to him, the Russians have put up that satellite. Isn't that a neat thing? Isn't that cool? And so he was a man of his time. He had been in World War II. He'd served in the U.S. Navy. He understood the necessity of strong defense for the United States, but he also thought that we should be looking for ways to cooperate with the Soviet Union, with the Russians, on major issues like science. So the space race was important, I think, at the time in the 1960s, but he also saw the necessity of cooperation in science as being a good way forward uh, for developing, in the end, the peace and security of the United States. So he always imbued that feeling in me, I think. 
And how did you decide that you would actually follow that as a, a career path? I was at Georgetown University studying Russian language in the early 1970s, and so I benefited from what was then the first detente, so-called first detente, negotiation of the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, negotiation of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, and the launch of science cooperation at that time. At the time, it was a, a space project called Soyuz Apollo, where we brought together the Apollo launcher and the Soyuz capsule and had a uh, meet-up in space, so to say. So that fascinated me when I was at university as an undergraduate, and I thought, this is a good direction to go in. I expected to see a lot more cooperation, again, in science and in space cooperation develop. If we return just to the theme of women in national security, you know, you've obviously said more needs to be done. What is NATO doing to encourage more women to be in senior positions in this field? And what more broadly in the the military and defence establishment can be done to change the mix? A lot of it uh, takes attention at the top and attention to recruiting and attention to ensuring that we are always looking for women in our top positions. I am the first Deputy Secretary General of NATO who happens to be a woman. To be honest, we don't have uh, any Assistant Secretaries General at the moment who, that's the next layer down, who are women, and and I think we need to work on that. And it's uh, very much front and center for both the Secretary General and me to be working on more women in the top management of the organization. I will say, though, that I am encouraged, and again, we are gender blind, so to say, in our hiring practices, and what I see coming up through the lower levels of the organization and into middle management are some tremendously talented young women, and so I see the organization over time rather naturally acquiring more senior leadership who are uh, women, that then requires that we're very attentive to glass ceilings and uh, the potential that somehow the institution will put barriers in their way to getting into those top management positions. And so we are very mindful of advancing that talent and figuring out ways to ensure that eventually they can get considered for the top slots. What would those um, barriers be? What would be an example of that kind of barrier that might not even be deliberate, but nonetheless, you know, prevent somebody making that kind of progress? Sometimes I hear, well, these kinds of slots require a lot of technical knowledge. And I say, well, I know women who have technical knowledge in that area. So sometimes, again, it's that kind of assumption that if you're a woman, you can't possibly know technical details of a weapon system or understand how uh, a missile defense system works or, or things like that. So there are, I would say, still some, some assumptions out there that can turn into barriers at times. How do you get the balance right? Because as you say, you're gender blind. You want the best person for the job. So how do you strike that balance between wanting to encourage women into these positions, but at the same time also making sure you have the best candidate? I think it's the same for any organization trying to hire top talent. You look for the top talent to come through the door, but also you need to nurture the talent you have in-house, and that means looking for opportunities for training, giving people opportunities to move around from place to place so they don't get stuck in a backwater or a, a blind alley in their career, but giving them some career mobility is also very important. Do you think that women bring something different to the national security arena? Is there a a strategic benefit, if you like, in having more gender-balanced NATO, more gender-balanced defence ministries, militaries, or is that gender stereotyping? Should we just not generalise at all about, you know, what either gender brings to the table? 
I know there's been some research out there on this. I'm not going to, to comment on that. What I can tell you about is my own experience. And my own experience, for example, at the negotiating table is I don't let the gamesmanship get under my skin. Russians are great negotiators. They are the people I've had to deal with most of the time in my career. They're great negotiators. It means they're great at playing games. And uh, I find that Perhaps I personally have an enormous amount of patience, but also some clever tactics for pushing back. And I just don't let it get me angry. And sometimes I see with my male counterparts that they get angry and stomp out of the room. And I think it's better if you just keep at it and keep at them, keep at your counterpart at the negotiating table. So men are kind of too emotional for this kind of work sometimes. <laughs> I suppose you could say too emotional. They just let stuff get under their skin, I'll put it that way. I guess then the one possible question is how far is NATO away from a first female Secretary General or a first, even a first female SACUR, Supreme Allied Commander? Well, we've already had down in Naples, one of our key commands, Admiral Michelle Howard, who just left that command within uh, the last year. She was uh, one of our very senior commanders at Naples. So I don't see it being so long before we have possibly Zakir, who is a woman. And I don't see it as so long possibly next section could come and will come in the next couple of years. So I, I do hope there'll be some senior female candidates for that job. One of the things I think when I was growing up, if I think about, you know, just these words, women and national security, women and defense, women were obviously very prominent also in the peace movement. You know, when I was growing up in the UK, the Greenham Common protest movement was you know, a fixture in the daily news and very much led by women. In a sense, the peace movement took, you could say, gender equality quite seriously. The Green Party, which grew out of that, it still has a co-leaders in Germany, one female, one male. Did you ever feel, I don't know if it would be too strong to say, on the wrong side of the argument or on the wrong side when, it, when you looked at your democratic opponents, say, and thought, they're actually taking this issue more seriously than we are? You know, I take it back even farther. I think about the suffragette movement, and women are risk takers. People forget that. They're willing to take uh, risks uh, for their families, certainly, but they are also willing to take risks in politics. And so I think that is a good thing. If you mean in my personal career, I ever felt like I was on the wrong side of the issues in uh, juxtaposition with the peace movement, I would say the answer is no. I think it's important to have all kinds of voices addressing these issues of peace and security. Some are more on the defense side of the equation. Others are more on the peace movement side of the equation and pushing diplomacy, certainly, and, and pushing the development of norms and principles that eventually lead to new regulation or international law. I think all have a role, and, and I don't feel like uh, one necessarily needs to be in battle with the other. If we just move a little bit, you are obviously a Russia hand, someone who's dealt with Russia a lot all throughout your career. How does Russia in its current incarnation, this government, compare to previous incarnations, if you like, in terms of their behaviour and how they interact with NATO, with Western governments? I'll use the word heartbreaking, frankly, because before 2014, I remember many years of very solid cooperation with the Russians dealing with threats of nuclear material, fissile material, or warheads going astray. And uh, that was really solid cooperation on behalf of all of humanity, honestly. But 
seeing what has happened since with Russia turning its back uh, on that type of international cooperation with Russia, instead seizing Ukrainian territory in Crimea, destabilizing the Donbass, and contributing to destabilization in the Middle East with the way it has helped to prosecute the civil war in, in Syria. All of these issues, you know, are, I think, very troubling and very difficult for the NATO alliance, and they pose for us challenges in terms of defense and deterrence. So clearly, we are working uh, by putting forward our battle groups in the Baltic states and in Poland. We are working to build up our follow-on forces, our ability to reinforce if we need to against a challenge from Russia. We hope that never happens. And in fact, that's why we also stress the necessity of dialogue with Russia. So we want to keep both of those tracks open, deterrence and defense, but also talking to the Russians. We just had a NATO-Russia Council meeting, so we will continue to try to pursue those both tracks. You talked about the NATO-Russia Council. How did that go? And, and in generally, can you point to anything that's come out of continuing this dialogue where you say, well, there's a very clear-cut case where it's useful and it's been very helpful that we've had this channel still open? We put out... Uh, you know, some information about the NATO-Russia Council. I want to stress that we keep it very low-key, though. This is a diplomatic exchange, so so we keep it low-key on purpose. But one thing that we did talk about publicly was the exchange of briefings we had. NATO is just wrapping up our biggest exercise in recent years called Trident Juncture 2018. It's wrapping up in Norway. It's a big deal. So we had a very good briefing from the NATO side about Trident Juncture, and then the Russians presented a briefing about their big exercise called Vostok, which took place in the eastern part of the far eastern part of the Russian Federation. Both briefings were really good. They provided uh, some interesting insights and information, and we gave each other some tough questions. So from my perspective, that was a good example of a case where we are building up mutual confidence and building up some mutual predictability just by things like exchanging briefings on our exercises. Did their briefing of their exercise match with your understanding of it from other channels? Not precisely, but that's okay. It's important to have those other channels and then you can uh, compare the information. The other topic that was mentioned in the press release that came out was the INF Treaty, obviously the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. I know that uh, many Western countries have accused Russia of already violating that treaty. Now the United States has said that it will withdraw. What does that mean for NATO, for NATO members? NATO members have been very clear that they are concerned about this treaty. They are concerned because it has provided for significant strategic stability between first the Soviet Union and then NATO Europe, and in more recent years the Russian Federation and NATO uh, Europe. So from the Allies' perspective, it is a very important component of strategic stability. So they have really put a strong message out there to the Russian Federation that they need to answer these concerns that the United States has raised about uh, a missile that's called the 9M729. It's a ground-launched cruise missile that uh, the United States has, and I was one of the ones who talked first to the Russians about this missile starting in my previous career back in 2013. So we have been putting out uh, questions about the missile for a long time, and uh, the Allies have been very, very clear in saying to the Russians, the onus is on you to answer these questions 
and uh, the onus is on you to ensure that you are in full compliance with the INF Treaty. But if they haven't answered those questions and you've been asking them for years, does that mean the treaty is basically dead? Well, for one thing, I uh, welcome the fact I saw Minister Lavrov said in a press conference that the Russians are working on answering those questions now. So I thought, great, maybe that gives a possibility for some further diplomacy. We'll see what happens. I think it is true what Secretary of Defense Mattis has said both publicly and when he was here for the defense ministerial treaty that is not being implemented. It's untenable over time if one side is not properly implementing it. What worries you most? What what keeps you up at night? And what is it perhaps the thing that worries you that you think other people are not taking seriously enough? I mean, you must have, obviously, you've got a lot to look at every day. What's the thing that concerns you most from, you know, from your desk? I'm frankly so exhausted at night, I sleep like a log. So uh, not much keeps me awake at night. But I will say we are constantly having to be attentive not only to those more or less traditional threats that are out there, like, uh, you know, the fact that we see big exercises, uh, not this year, but last year we saw the big Zapad exercise that the Russians ran very close to NATO borders. So we have those more or less traditional conventional kinetic threats that we are concerned about. But nowadays we're looking at so-called hybrid or asymmetric methods, attacks on information systems, We must be concerned about so-called cyber attacks, cyber threats, but uh, also the use of uh, social media to accelerate misinformation flows. The other major areas that we pay a lot of attention to these days are uh, innovation of technology in areas such as artificial intelligence, the emergence of new kinds of uh, unmanned vehicles or unmanned weapon systems. And these are some capabilities that will be in the hands of possible adversaries. We're going to have to watch out for how we defend against them, but we also have to think about how we can responsibly make use of these kinds of technologies as well. Okay, and I wondered finally if you could give us a piece of good news from your world. Your job is to look for threats, assess threats. But is there anything where you think that's actually got a lot better. Here's some good news. Do you see any in your day-to-day work or or if you take the long view? I want to go back to a point I made earlier. When I um, come into meetings at NATO and I see all of these bright young women uh, sitting around the table, and frankly, when I go on mission on behalf of NATO, many times the officer accompanying me is a very bright woman who knows her brief inside and out and can help guide me whether I'm in uh, Beijing or Skopje. So uh, I really have to say that seeing that new talent emerge at NATO is, for me, the best news around. Rose Gottmiller, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. A message from Future Europe, a podcast that we think you'll like from the European Investment Bank. Do you ever wonder what life will be like in the future? Well, what if I told you that you can hear the future happening around you right now on the Future Europe podcast? Like the story behind the people building the world's fastest electric car in Croatia, or super laser technology in Hungary, and a Dutch project to cut a third of all food waste. Each seven-minute episode tells you something about how your life as a European will look in the future through innovative projects from each of the EU countries. If you enjoy EU Confidential, you might like Future Europe. The series is only halfway through, so go and check it out. Listen to the Future Europe podcast at eib.org futureeurope or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel. Hello, Alva. Hi. 
Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I landed back in Europe and I realized that Brexit at once never changes. It's just almost completely static and it's changing faster than ever. So why don't we board the Titanic and let's start talking about this rather crazy process. Maybe we shouldn't go straight into all of the political drama because it's undoubtedly all going to change by the time anyone is listening to this. But it's probably not a very good starting point if Theresa May has lost two Brexit secretaries in the space of three months. Maybe let's focus a little bit on the deal. Is this actually a good deal for both parties or have we got something fundamentally wrong here? So no matter what the cast of characters, it's always going to end up in this car crash. I don't think it's a very good deal, but I think it's probably one of the only deals she could have gotten. There's no big wins for the UK here. A lot of Members of the parliament have already said that this it is doesn't... This Yeah, the British parliament, which is currently debating the Brexit deal as we are speaking. So it doesn't really provide any guarantee that there's going to be frictionless trade and that the trade deal, you know, has been a bit... Let's wait and see. But they were never going to be able to get the EU to budge on that, no. ever. I was looking at through the issues today and I was thinking, you know, what would they have bent on? And what could she have made them do? I mean, there are just so many more of them against her. It's a 28 member state block of the biggest single trading market in the world. I just I think it's such a difficult thing for her to have done. But it's almost always going to end up with something roughly like like this. this. And it's actually probably roughly what she actually wants, because She knows she has to remove people from some of the core institutions of the EU. And yet she doesn't believe in a hard Brexit and she never has really believed in one of those hard Brexits or those no-deal Brexits. Lena, sitting where you are, do you think Theresa May can actually make this deal stick or are we actually just going to have to restart this process in the next couple of weeks and Theresa May is gone? I think we have to look back back into 1969. It has been extremely rough for the UK to be part and become a member of the EU. So history repeats itself. We're talking about almost 41 years of common regulations and adapting to all these countries and all these directives. So it's absolutely going to be extremely difficult. I'm not sure that uh, Mrs. May is going to make it. I'm not sure if anyone else can make it. The whole uh, Brexit is something very complicated, very political, and uh, we're going to see many people coming in and coming out. I'm still looking forward the four coming years to keep talking about the Brexit. This is not going to be easy on anyone, whether her or another superwoman or another superman. It's Maybe a mess. that's it's the a greatest irony of all, is that now Britain has essentially the most organized pro-EU movement in Europe. It's hard to find that in many other countries, despite the best efforts of Emmanuel Macron and some of these new parties like Volt or the left-wing organizations. Yet you get millions out on the streets now in Britain marching for the EU. But the, the thing I've always found maddening by this whole process is that Exactly like you were saying, Lena, after decades of building up this regulatory set of books, Britain is going to have the exact same regulations the day after Brexit as it had the day before Brexit, either because it commits to doing that in the deal or because it's just going to take 40 years to unwind what they spent 40 years building up. So you do have to wonder what exactly is going to be different as a British person um, from one day to the next, aside from inconvenience factors. I struggle to pinpoint where identity is going to be different, where prosperity is going to be different. 
Well, if there's no deal. The thing is about this that it was obvious from the get-go that the European leaders were never going to believe that they would leave without a deal. And I think that Theresa May has been a bit woeful in that regard. I think things were working against her, all these papers coming out saying basically, you know, (laughs) what's going to happen to the UK, which is much worse than what would happen to the EU. So I think there's not going to be a better deal. I can't see anywhere, any way that there's going to be a better deal. And even the reasons why people object to the deal are different. So why is the SNP objecting? Because they want to stay in the customs union. You know, why is the DUP objecting? For totally different reasons. It's just a perfect storm of conflicting priorities for different areas. And no one likes it, it seems. Well, does um, that mean Project Fear is the inevitable end point here that was the big drama in the referendum campaign is all the remainers were accused of arguing for project fear and now Theresa may is almost in a corner essentially saying well mm-hmm. you know what we can't guarantee people won't die if there's a no deal brexit that's what matt hancock was saying in the the cabinet meeting yesterday it's been reported you know essentially you're bullying people into accepting the deal is that isn't that where we're at now lena definitely because um you wouldn't want people to be uh, as a leader uh, just without any direction. Uh, So if you have a challenge in the beginning and you have accepted this challenge, I think she will fight for it until the end, which will be her being out, that's for sure. And with her political assassination, because I don't think there will be any kind of future for her or many of her members of the cabinet. But again, there is a, a very important thing that no one is talking about is the relationship of the UK with the with the word. And I think if there's a glimpse of of hope for the British people to know, okay, how we are going to regulate our trade with with other countries, with Africa, with Japan, with China, with the Middle East, British people are industrialists, are trade, are commercial people. So I think this will help them to to visualize uh, what's next for the UK and the world. Now, very quickly, like literally one word answers. Second referendum. Is it a good or a bad idea? I think it's the best idea they have. I don't think it will happen. Very good. And now a second quick topic. Angela Merkel made a very interesting speech to the European Parliament, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it wasn't very gutsy. She wasn't really making many political sacrifices in that speech. She was pointing at something in the far distance, the possibility of a European army, but she wasn't giving Emmanuel Macron anything that he wants in terms of the short or the medium-term reform agenda for Europe. She wasn't proposing anything that she might have to stake her own career or reputation on. It seemed like she was just talking about something nice that someone else will have to deliver. Oh, yeah, it was a bit of a swan song kind of thing. Like, this is what... Isn't that a sad I'd, swan song? I'd, I'd <laughs> like, like 14 for, years amounts to that. Yeah. Well, again, we I, we spoke about what her legacy is going to be, and I think ideas isn't one of them. What I did, was interested in is what, this whole European Security Council idea. That, to me, is fascinating how that would work. I mean, hopefully it, it's not meant as a workaround around the UN Security Council. On but these. What, what did they even mean by that? I was in a, a fog of jet lag when she gave this speech. So what is this Security Council supposed to be? I mean, I would imagine it's about when the EU army should be deployed. Right. But, but how- not everyone's in the council. I know, I think it would be rotating. Obviously, there wouldn't be any permanent members, I don't think. But it would rotate around. So it's another um, committee. Yeah, well, I mean, a committee with a lot of power. The power to yeah deploy 
a European army, potentially. I don't see what it adds that you couldn't get out of the existing leaders' meeting or the existing defence ministers' meeting. But, Lena, do you have any extra insight? I think it's just going to be another council. I mean, the United Nations Security Council is is useless as as much as as we can imagine. But that's a bit different because that's about Uh, people with nuclear weapons and then a very select group who are basically an executive committee. This just sounds like another group of the same people. I think this speech was really good, was uh, as well uh, timely. It was 100 years uh, for the end of the First World War. It was emotional. She set herself talking to the emotions and the European citizens and about the European values. So it's just like reminding the Europeans of this amazing ongoing peace project. And of course, it was uh, repeated several times in her speech, one day, one day. So she just set out a vision. That doesn't mean that it will happen. It doesn't mean that we will have a European army. It doesn't mean that we will have a European Security Council. This is the job of, of a leader to uh, say something that probably will not happen in their own life. And then maybe hope that someone one day votes for it. Well, there you go, Theresa May. Fingers crossed for you. Otherwise, uh, you might have some spare time to come on this podcast in, in the coming weeks. <laughs> Pleasure. No? Re, uh, the, revisiting the trauma. I don't, yeah, Maybe in two years. God. <laughs> Lena Alva, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of EU Confidential. Of course, podcasting is a team effort, so big thanks to Andrew Gray, the sublimely named Eddie Wax, and Antonio Fernandez. Remember, if you haven't signed up for the podcast, you can do that wherever you found it, including now on Spotify. And if you sign up to the EU Confidential community on politico.eu forward slash registration, you will get an email each week notifying you of the podcast and invitations to any podcast-related events. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.